0: Beyond Queer Stories, the podcast that gives voice to the queer community through
1: the art of storytelling.
0: Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories. I'm Dawn.
1: And this is John Dylan.
0: Take us away. Who's our first guest?
1: Yes, we have in the studio audience Kate Desico. Kate is this phenomenal human who has opened a wind and solar renewable energy market here in Chicago with the company she has been working for in Pittsburgh, Green Mountain Energy. In her free time, she likes to teach and go to yoga, write poetry, read, cook, garden, farm, save lives. Her goal is to work in naturopathic medicine, again, save lives. And farm, again, save lives and herbs to make teas and tinctures for her patients. I am so excited to talk to this person today because we get to hear a lot of great information. I love the vastness. I love the variety of our history, and I'm excited about the trajectory of our future. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Chris Stories. How are you today?
2: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful introduction. I'm doing great today. It is an extremely ugly day here in Chicago. Um, very, very windy and gray and rainy and icy, but uh, it's really nice and cozy in this studio.
0: We can ignore all the craziness going on outside <laughs> yeah, in the comfort sure. of this cozy studio. Yes. yes. Well, to start us off, could you tell us what identities most influence your experiences?
2: That is a good question. Um, the identities that most influence my experiences in life are definitely queer a feminist woman. Wonderful. How do those come forward for you? Well, um, I think that, and this will come through a little bit later for sure, but I think that the way those come through for me um, are that I grew up in a very, uh, very white, suburban, upper middle class neighborhood. And I went to school in a high school where nobody was queer and no one came out. I mean, obviously people were queer, but nobody came out until far after high school. And um, people kind of were born there, live there, die there, and no one kind of explores beyond those realms. And so it was something I just never even really considered growing up as a possibility um, being queer. And feminism was just something that was never talked about. No one... I don't think even really knew the definition um, in my high school. And I think that it could have been a very easy, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in the societal norm sense, uh, life to have just continued to front as a straight kind of accommodating woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And it took, yeah, a lot of different experiences and confrontations and the influences of many people, both very positive influences and very negative um, to, I think, kind of push me into the direction of having kind of queer and feminism be such a defining factor in my life in the way that I like to present myself.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's very interesting. And it's what, what gets me is the fact that we end up walking into our courage. Of, of walking in who we are authentically. Um, and I, I look at a lot of the Gen Z's now and the, the young tipped millennials, and I just feel so enlightened by them because now you can be unapologetically you mm-hmm. and you have support. You don't have to worry about a lot of those things. And even if those things happen where, you know, you look up in your family, decides, you know, we're going to go against what you're saying. We're not going to give you whatever the love that you think you deserve. There will be someone to catch you. And I'm so glad that they are getting it. But I'm glad that a lot of us who are not as young, are realize, you know what, I'm going to be me. And I'm so glad you chose to be you.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think that that's that's very relevant. And, you know, growing up in a time where I think everyone's main concern while they were going through puberty and, you know, coming into their young adult years, the main concern I remember everyone having, including a lot of, you know, myself and my peers, was this idea of how can I fit in? How can I fit in? Why am I different from everyone else? And I find it so refreshing in the Gen Z yeah, and Gen Z, that there's so many individuals where they're like, how do I not fit in and how does that make me amazing? And mm-hmm. how does that make me even better than I could be if I was trying so hard to be like everybody else? And I think that's an extremely enlightened and really, really inspiring um, momentum moving forward.
0: Yeah, it's so great to say, see people being supported in that now and having the freedom to be who they are and parents coming forward and stepping up more and supporting that because I think that was a big barrier too for a lot of people. Definitely. (laughs) And I know you talked about kind of being from this like homogenous type town (laughs) and not really seeing people doing this at all. So what was that first environment you were in where you saw people being more authentic that gave you permission in a way to be your authentic self?
2: So I, I mean, I think I always kind of did my own thing still in high school, which I am grateful and have no idea how it happened, but I am grateful that it did. Um, but when I graduated high school, I ended up moving um, across the world to Australia oh, wow. and uh, when I was 18. And it was the most incredible and terrifying and hard experience, but I actually was dating this, this is not my coming out story to be clear, <laughs> but I was dating a man, an Australian man, um, who's still a very dear friend of mine and his older brother brought a friend along with him to a dinner one time and uh, this friend was a very, very openly out gay woman who was eight years my senior and uh, very, very femme, which I just had never seen especially growing up in the environment that I previously described. It was just, you know, first off, gay women didn't really exist. But if they did, you had a very kind of boxed view of what they were to present themselves as or look like or dress like. And it was a huge shock to my system to meet this woman who was so confident um, in who she was but also didn't appear the way that I would have assumed she would have as an 18-year-old who had seen nothing in the world. Mm-hmm. And for her um, to, to, yeah, to, to, I guess, bring that to my awareness that, wow, you can – this this sounds terrible, I guess, now, but as an 18-year-old, like, wow, you can look like she looks and still mm-hmm. be gay. And I know that seems so silly to me now, but growing up in, you know, shout out Wexford, Pennsylvania. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Where that just didn't really exist. it just it was the first time that I was aware that I had any room to question my sexuality, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't someone who, I guess, was born and knew that I was gay. and mm-hmm. i I think that story is definitely relevant and out there, but not true of a lot of my friends and a lot of people I know who are queer women. Um, so it was it was definitely a moment where I think it, it took pause. And while it didn't quite click yet, it, it definitely for me was the first time my wheel started turning.
0: Sometimes that's all it takes is that moment where you are opened up to more information about an identity and what that can look like. Because when you're shown the same image, the same story and narrative of what someone with a certain identity has, and then you see something the complete opposite of that, you start questioning everything.
2: Completely. Yes. That's, yeah. that's very much how it felt. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that
1: you got a chance to escape, um, if that's a word that I could use, your environment.
2: That's and, definitely a word you can use, yes. <laughs>
1: okay, okay, okay. You can transition from that environment and then be given that second outlook on life that you need. Yes. Um, and and, and I'll see, especially Sydney and Mel- Melbourne are my favorite spots. Mm. And it truly is a whole new world. Like I if, I would sing if it wasn't 10 o'clock in the morning. But
0: <laughs> You're not going <laughs> to sing for us. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm really glad that you got a chance to gain that experience. Do you still have contact with
2: that person now? Um, I you know what? I don't. So we we only we, we engaged maybe three or four times over the course of the next six months. And every time we were in an environment socially together, we would kind of corner ourselves off in the room mm-hmm. and just talk the whole time. And I was completely enamored by this woman. Um, yeah. And then, you know, just life continued on. And, um, I do know what she's up to and I know she's married to a beautiful woman and they have a daughter together and it's, she's, yeah, it's, she seems, her life seems like it's going very well. And I actually don't even know if she knows how influential she Mm. was on my life or experience, but, um, but yeah, we're not, we're not currently in contact anymore, but I am very much still, um, in contact with most of my roots in Australia, which is great. That's
1: good. Good. I hope that you get a chance to pay it forward with someone that's going to Need that mental and courage,
2: and I really that, hope that too.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So, what brought you there to Australia? Oh, um, so you said you left and went all the way to the other side of the world, yeah, literally. Um, you know,
2: there's the the short answer and the long answer <laughs> for that one, um, which maybe I'll go with the medium okay. answer. <laughs> we'll take uh, um, so. Yeah, basically, uh, I mean, did I did I mention I grew up in a small, yeah. <laughs> suburban, <running> white, <laughs> um, and so traveling wasn't really something anyone did. It wasn't, yeah, it just wasn't valued, and it wasn't really important in my family either too much um, to get out of where we were or to experience new cultures. So when I was a senior in high school, my year 12, um, everyone in my high school would Raise a bunch or sorry, earn a bunch of money. (laughs) Raise a bunch of money, take money from their parents, you know. (laughs) Uh, and they would go away for a week and they called it senior trip. Mm -hmm. And you'd go to this crappy little beach town in a shitty little house that cost you probably a grand to be there for a week each. And then you'd spend a stupid amount of money to buy a bunch of alcohol as underage drinkers and just get very, very drunk for an entire week and call it a really fun time. And that wasn't really where I was at in high school, and that's totally fine. Um, Not to say there's anything wrong with that, but I didn't drink in high school at all. And so I was, you know, had been working still and saving money and was like, well, what can I do with this money? Um, So my best friend and I um, at the time decided that we would go to Australia for two weeks in the middle of my senior year. Uh, She was a year below. And... Yeah, and so we went there for two weeks, and I, five minutes off the plane in Sydney, I stepped on Coogee Beach, and I was like, this is where I want to be. I need to live here. I know it in my heart. And I came back and had just committed to Boston University, but told my parents that I was going to scrap it and apply Mm. to universities in Australia. And um, they were supportive to an extent. And no, they were, they were supportive. I'm going to scrap that, but it was hard. It was challenging. And so I ended up going out there for school and, um, thought that was probably my easiest way to move and live there. Um, and that's, yeah, what I did. And I ended up being there uh, on and off, but pretty consistently for seven and a half years.
1: Oh, wow. Wonderful. That's a nice
2: time. Yeah, it was, it was really incredible. Um, I'd still be there, but I got uh, kicked out and banned from the- Wait, <laughs> for, what? for three years. The ban is over. I'm going next month. It's all okay. But that's a whole story a, in <laughs> itself. You
0: just dropped is, a big box. It's <laughs> like no, it's
2: okay. <laughs> it's, it's. I mean, it's. It was just. It was a surprise. It was a visa issue. Um, oh, okay. So nothing super exciting. But, but, then, but then they banned you because of the visa issue. Yeah, my privileged self um, <laughs> was like, oh, I overstayed my visa for six days, but I've been here for seven and a half years and. I'm, I went to school here and I'm fine. I'll just go turn myself in and they'll be cool with it. And that's just not how it went down. I uh. went and was like, I'm sorry, I overstayed it by six days and didn't notice. And they were like, okay, you have to leave immediately wow. <laughs> um, and you can't come back for three years. So, oh, um, They don't play over there. They don't. No, <laughs> they don't. Immigration in Australia is intense. Um, but yes… I so I that's why I ended up coming back here, and that was uh, that would have happened in 2016. So, okay, um, it'll be just about four years since that happened. But I've been back once, and w- I'm going back again next month. So,
1: I'm happy for you. I was like, wait a minute, that's a different type of tea. We're about to get this right.
2: New- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait, what you do, girl?
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: I have a whole other story I like to tell people at bars to seem more interesting, but no, it's just a visa issue. I got
0: banned from the whole continent of Australia.
1: Right, Right. that's okay. We're glad to have you now, but we're very excited that you're going back. So, what are your plans moving forward?
2: I'm definitely not planning on moving back right now mainly because i have a dog <laughs> um otherwise i think i'd be there but i have a a pup who it's going to be a whole thing to try to move her out there with me um so i'm i'm trying to go back you know like once a year for a couple weeks just to see all my friends and you know be there again but i'm definitely planning on staying in chicago for a, a while longer
1: now with this wonderful history of academia of your experiences you're trying to become a naturopathic doctor, change the world, cure AIDS, all that other kind of stuff.
0: So, no pressure. Uh,
1: not, not at all. I get it. You're a Rhodes Scholar. You're just here hanging. So, what do, What are your plans? Do you want to incorporate that with some work in Australia? You know, I'm kind of do it in tandem with Chicago. What are you thinking about doing?
2: With the fear of sounding very too cool for school. I just, I don't really have any plans. Um, I, I, um, it's, it's not just because I genuinely, every time I make them, something changes and Mm. I found that I get so adamantly set on plans that I make and then things change. Like I get banned from a continent or, (laughs) um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I, would love to end back up in Australia at some point um, long term. I would love to be working as a doctor in Australia for sure. I think that's something that isn't nearly as available or accredited in Australia as it is here quite yet. Um, And I'd love to be part of the movement of bringing natural medicine over there um, a bit more solidly. But yeah, I don't have any set plans as to heading back there and living there long term just yet. I am really kind of open, um, and I like to kind of consider myself to always be that way since I moved there to begin with, as to whatever's kind of pulling me in a certain direction in the moment, whether that's, you know, some kind of knowledge or a course or a person that I love or something, I'm kind of open to moving anywhere, and I think you really can be happy anywhere in the world as long as you're with people you love and doing something you love, so...
1: It sounds awesome. It really sounds awesome. And for the record, that's on Australia. They have lost a human, a human um, by not letting you stay. despite the visa in, uh, situation. You could have been helping to fight the fires, but no. <laughs> it's,
2: it's some rules and regulations. Yeah. Well, they need all the help they can get right now, unfortunately, and their prime minister, you know, not to get political, is doing. Absolutely nothing um, to help the situation himself, so.
0: Yeah, it's very disheartening to see the government not stepping in to save their own land.
2: Complete, I mean, he went on, sorry, I'm getting passionate about this, but I have, you know, I have a lot of friends who actually live in the country, and I've had friends who had to evacuate their childhood Mm -hmm. homes over this period of time, and it's so frustrating that the prime minister... Went on a vacation and his whole mm-hmm. excuse was, well, what do you, you know, I can't be out there holding the hose myself, getting like to, ext- right. you know, you to extinguish these fires. It's, less
0: compassionate response. Though. No, <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> but, can't get much less.
2: you know, for as incredible of a country as it is, they definitely have, um, as we all do, they, there's a lot of things going on in Australia that are, are disheartening. Um, and this is, this is one that has fortunately been brought to light globally, but there's a lot that, you know, also aren't, and I'm sure that's true of everywhere, but, you know.
0: on that note, it is story time, (laughs) and it feels like, well, we kind of talked a little bit about your coming into identity process, and I know your story is going to shed some more light on what that was for you, so we'd love to hear your story today.
2: everyone's coming out stories is super important and interesting for me to hear. It's one of my favorite things when I meet new queer friends or I'm going on new dates is to hear someone's coming out story. Mine is in a lot of ways very cliché but also, you know, pretty intense. So, as I mentioned, you know, I that was the first time my wheels started turning was meeting this woman who was older than me and very confident in her identity and very very feminine which at this point in my life, I know, I, I very much was, and I'm, I'm still quite feminine, but maybe not as much. And it, I ended up staying with my boyfriend at the time for two and a half years until we finally split. And it was a year after that, and I hadn't been going on any dates, I hadn't been interested in anyone, that I decided to do a solo road trip around the US and Canada. And I was on this road trip for a few months, and it was incredible. and maybe the best traveling I've ever done. And then I, as a stupid 21-year-old does, realized only in the nick of time that I was completely out of money <laughs> and realized I was completely out of money and kind of scrambled, okay, what can I do? How can I refacilitate my funds? And I – at the po- this point was um, at the Bruce Peninsula in Canada, so I needed to go somewhere that was relatively close to work for a little bit. And I remembered hearing friends go and work as a camp counselor at a sleepaway summer camp. And so I started doing some research on my laptop and found one in the mountains of Massachusetts who was looking for a yoga instructor, which is something that I did and do. And I applied and got the job and basically had to head there pretty soon after that. So I arrived and there were 10 days where it was just the counselors before campers came for an orientation. And I arrived and within maybe the first three hours sat down at a table with three other women and one of them, appearance-wise, was very obviously a queer woman. And we all started getting along very quickly and I found myself very attracted to this woman. And we started, you know, kind of being flirtatious and within basically three days of being at this orientation before camp even started, I ended up coming out. (laughs) I came out. I felt so liberated, I was so excited, and my best friend and I at the camp, camp, who was one of the other women sitting at that table, she and I started dating, and it was getting quite serious. And this camp was very intensive. I taught six yoga classes a day, but I also had um, six 13-year-olds that I had to watch over, you know, morning and night. But you had um, a couple nights off a week to go, and for like three hours, go and be away from the camp and do whatever you'd like to do. Side note, there were about five or six male counselors at this camp. It was an all-women's camp, I forgot to mention that. All-women all camp, all-girls, and um, so all-women staff mostly, which of course, as someone who still identified as a heterosexual at that point, I didn't put two and two together. The only <laughs> women who would come and want to be a counselor at an all-girls camp all summer long are mostly queer women, so there were five or six male counselors there because obviously, you know, female counselors can't teach sports, so they had to bring in the men to do that, Um, which is unfortunate. But there were male counselors there as well, and one of them, the, like, head male counselor decided that he was interested in me, and he asked me on a date. To which I politely declined, and everything was fine. Um, and then one night, my co-counselor, who actually was the first woman that I was interested in when I was at camp, um, her name's Gina. Shout out Gina! First um, of all, very good friends. She's a wonderful person. Gina came back to the bunk one night and was like, hey, something really weird just happened to me. All the the male counselors asked me out for a drink tonight, and it's one of my nights off to go. And I was like, oh, weird. Are you going to go? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I think I am. That was just really cool of them. Fast forward to maybe four hours later, and Gina comes back into the, the camp and the cabin, and she is very drunk, like, unsafely drunk. And... I'm asking her what's wrong, if she's okay, and I'm trying to help her, and she was telling me that the whole time she was out for this drink, um, the male counselors just kept asking her as she got drunker and drunker if I was gay, and it was like they were prodding this situation, and Gina kept saying, you know, if you want to know if Kate's gay, you have to ask Kate, and they were just trying to get some information out of her, really, really abusing the situation and her, honestly, and... You know, she was brought back. I got her into bed safely and camp went on. And it was maybe a week later that I was one of my nights off and it coincided with my girlfriends and we went to this crappy little trailer bar. It was, it was literally a, a, like an RV that they turned into a bar <laughs> in the middle of the mountains. And we were there and we started playing pool and we were off campus and I kissed Sophie at this bar and one of the male counselors saw. And the next day, in the middle of the day, um, over the whole camp, mine and my girlfriend Sophie's name got called over the intercom to go to the director of the camp's office. And we both went and we didn't know what was going on and the door shut behind us and this straight man who directed the camp um, sat us down and said that we were being completely inappropriate around camp. He said that at our staff meeting that day that Sophie was sitting on my lap in front of all the campers. And we both said that's not true. We weren't even sitting in the same row at the, camp, or the, the meeting. Not true at all. We could bring 10 people in right now that would prove that completely false, that would tell you without even talking to us where we were sitting in the meeting. And he shut that down very quickly and said, no, no, uh, it's my word against yours, and I direct this camp. Um Sophie was sitting on your lap. It made me completely uncomfortable. Um you guys hug a lot and when you hug, you guys your hands are really low. Like he was he was just basically prodding the situation and trying to make us feel very very uncomfortable and honestly quite perverted. Um is how it, it felt. And as a 21-year-old who had come out literally maybe a month before that and didn't kind of know what my rights are not rights were. The director basically told us that – not basically, completely told us that we had to sign a contract that said that we would not speak to one another until the end of camp. And if we did, we got fired immediately and were denied all of our pay. So this camp was something where you got paid in bulk at the end once you completed it. They gave you your lump sum for working 24 hours a day essentially. And – yeah, we would have had to forfeit all of our pay if we spoke to one another before the end of camp. And as a 21-year-old who, again, didn't know my rights, I signed it and thus began my girlfriend and I not being allowed to speak to one another if we wanted to be paid for work that we'd already completed. And I left that room. And of course, the only person I wanted to talk to about it was my girlfriend and best friend at the camp, but we couldn't speak. And so I didn't know what to do. And I was sobbing and I called my mom and I was just a mess and she was asking me, what's wrong, what's wrong? And it was kind of <laughs> kind of an interesting coming out because it was like I, I had to tell her <laughs> first, oh, mom, I'm queer. At this point I identified as a gay woman I was like, mom, I'm gay. But you can't have feelings about that right now. That's not what we're talking about. There's this other bigger thing happening. Um, which I didn't, you know, have the vocabulary before to call, like, overt homophobia. But I, you know, was crying to my mom on the phone and said, Mom, I'm, I've come out, I have a girlfriend, I'm at this camp, and we're not allowed to talk to one another or we don't get paid for the work we've done. And I'm super fortunate that my mom was was supportive and, you know, definitely did deal with her feelings if she had any of discomfort um, on her own time then to be there for me. However, again, it's something that I didn't know what my rights were, and I'm not sure if my mom even knew what my rights were. Like, I don't know if she knew that that what was happening was completely illegal, and we could have taken this camp to court. We could have, you know, sued for such direct homophobia when there were, you know, male counselors taking female counselors on dates, and it was never Mm -hmm. a thing. So, yeah, um, I guess... Looking back on it now as a woman almost 30, it's very unsettling still for me and it feels like something that while I feel very comfortable and okay now and and I know where I stand now and how to stand up for myself, it just basically burdens and hurts me that I know there's 21-year-olds and younger and older who are going to be put in many similar situations and don't know that that's something that they can fight against. And, you know, as Jondalyn brought up earlier, Gen Z is is so – there's such a great momentum there about moving forward and being who you are and being unapologetic about it, and I think that that's a great, you know, place we're moving into. But I also know that, you know, the town that I grew up in and many across the U.S. and the world in general, that's still not seen and that's still not being projected. And, you know, I, I just – it's something that I feel like needs to be talked about more, that that's, that's just never going to be okay and that, you know, that's something that people need to fight up against and mm-hmm. push against and not take that kind of mistreatment because something they're doing is making someone else uncomfortable.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That is is a unique coming out experience and to right from out the gate just getting harassed and having to undergo illegal workplace discrimination immediately when you start to come into yourself and into your identity and that can be devastating that can really shake someone in their identity
2: yeah thank you for for listening you know I don't know it's it's interesting because I do see how how it could have really shaken my identity if anything I think it fortified it Mm -hmm. I feel Something that I've never felt since is any embarrassment or uncomfortability in showing public affection with my partners or uh, expressing who it is that I'm dating to a colleague or an employer or whoever it might be, if, if it comes up naturally, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel very fortunate that it fortified my identity and my sexuality and my want and almost need to assert myself in that in that place, Mm -hmm. hence being queer and feminist and woman are the most defining factors for me. But yeah, I know there's so many situations where it could have really shaken me out of that or scared me away from that um, identity that is so truly who I am and unapologetically who I am.
1: Wow, I think I went through a myriad of emotions as you were telling the story. From number one, being open and vulnerable to tell the story, I was like, oh my gosh, she needs some water. Do we have any tissue in the area? <laughs> I'm so angry right now. I hate toxic masculinity. I want to cry. This sounds so beautiful. She's so empowered. I just want to hug her. Mm. So, thank you so much mm-hmm. for sharing that. Thank you. Um, and and I would still go after that that camp. I don't know if they're still in, in operation.
2: They are still in operation. They're one of the top camps in the US, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And
1: it's not like a Jesus concentration camp that I'm familiar with. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's yeah. it's not religiously affiliated, quote unquote, but mm-hmm. it definitely um yeah, it's it's definitely uh, has some ingrained toxic culture for sure, which is unfortunate. Um, because I know that there's hundreds of young girls who are going there who are going to realize one day that they're queer and Mm. they're going to have these ingrained and embedded internal homophobias from, you know, experiences throughout their whole life, of course, in society at large. But this is a camp where they go to feel safe and comfortable and fit in. And Mm. they're getting this very conflicting message, which is so unfortunate to me.
0: That's what I was thinking about. What influence... Does it maybe, like yours was a very overt experience like you were describing. So what are those maybe very subtle, silent ways that this message is coming through to all those young girls? And how are they internalizing that then into their identity? Because when you do have an all-girls camp, I'm sure stuff is happening. People are at that age, like kids are really trying to figure out who they are and sexuality and emotions and first- feelings of those romantic attractions. And a lot of people figure that out during summers at day camps and things like that. Are there things that you saw that did get communicated across to the campers as well?
2: Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um In in subtle and absolutely explicit ways. I, like I said, I, I looked after 13-year-old uh, girls. And Something that we did with the 13-year-old girls was there was a, an all-boys camp that was over, you know, over the hill, and they'd have a mixer once every couple weeks. And there's this camp tradition, which you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, um, <laughs> a camp tradition where if at the mixer one of the girls kissed one of the boys at the camp, if, they, if, if they, there was a kiss that happened, then that girl got a milkshake. The… the, the ca- Yes. <laughs> the counselors… Something were,
0: feels really wrong about
2: that. Yeah. I, I feel very… It's very uncomfortable to think back to now and to have been a part of it all and, and felt it so strongly even when I was, you know, 21 as a counselor there. Um, there's this reward essentially for being sexually active as a young teen with a guy that you just met. However. Their their own counselor who's accused of having a woman sit on her lap, which also never happened, but even if it had, mm-hmm. there's the punishment of, of potential firing. Like, there's just such a discrepancy there and such a clear patriarchal message that yeah. is so frustrating to me and completely diminishes any value and worth that these young girls have and can feel in themselves as to a few… If you do this thing with this boy, then you get a reward that the other girls don't get. And that's how you are defined Mm -hmm. then and given value based off of your existence to this boy. And to me, that's Mm -hmm. just so opposite of what an all-girls camp should ever be telling any of these girls. And it's such an unfortunate experience where this is such an opportunity to tell these girls things they're not hearing in school alongside you know, their male counterparts and in a system that's completely run by the patriarchy and society. And instead we're, we're just enforcing these messages even more overtly than they are being enforced in society at large.
1: Wow.
0: I feel like that needs a moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just, I have words, but I want to sit with this for a minute because that's, that's someone's work structure, you know, that's someone's living arrangement within their own family where they are, you know, desiring to be open and queer and, and love who they want to love. But yet, in field, there's probably another sibling who's being honored for being the go-getter and to fit these um, toxic ideologies of what relationships should look like. Versus being free and open. I
0: just, yeah, go ahead. I'm just thinking putting, like you were kind of saying, young girls in this position where they're encouraged to try and kiss a boy that they, I'm assuming they don't have many interactions with these no, other man. kids. So, and what that just kind of like group think does at all ages, but especially when you're trying to fit in you're trying to be liked, you're trying to not only be liked by your peers who you're there with, but then these other counselors who are essentially have the potential to be mentors and role models. And my hope for a camp would be for it to be empowering, which I think is what a lot of your disappointment, it sounds like, is around. Like, it has the potential to be this room for growth and empowerment in all of these young girls. And they're putting these rewards and focus on if you kissed a boy you don't know, which sends a powerful message about, like you were saying, identity and worth and what you should work for or towards instead of it coming from you or being something that you
2: want and desire. Completely. And I think it sends a powerful message also about power and how a, a female or a woman identifying individual, their tie to a man is their direct tie to power. Mm-hmm. And to not have that tie is to not have that connection to any power. and. Mm-hmm. I felt that so strongly because while it's a milkshake at the end of the day to 13-year-old girls at a summer camp mm-hmm. who are, you know, all hanging out all day and you're the one that gets the milkshake from your counselor, that that is power. That makes you feel powerful. Mm-hmm. That makes you feel empowered. And for the thing to be making you feel empowered, like the thing you have to do to get that empowerment is to connect yourself to a boy, any boy, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. That's such, I think, a... a deeper, deeper message of what connecting yourself to a man can bring you in this world.
0: I'm finding myself wondering, what is that ritual? So they go to this mixer, they come back. (laughs) Who gives them the milkshake? Where is this taking place? What does that
2: look like even? (laughs) So yeah, there's this mixer and all the counselors are there as well. And there's this encur- – it's this fun game almost, um, where there's this encouragement from the counselors as well as the other campers of, like, pushing Even these the girls. Even the counselors. Yes. It's and, – and it's this group thing and it's so – it was yeah. so hard for me to see and feel. And also I, I think that I was unfortunately still young enough that I didn't really understand the depth of what was happening. Mm. So while I don't think I wholeheartedly participated in how weird of a thing that it was, I also don't feel like I really spoke out against it or didn't really process it until years later. But yes, you're at this mixer and there's this kind of almost forceful pushing or encouragement and then… If it, quote, unquote, happens or if someone saw it, like, you have to have a witness too, which is, like, the weirdest part that you can't just say, like, oh, I kissed – like, someone had to have seen you kiss this boy so that you get the milkshake and then you all go. I think that the ice cream shop close to the camp was called Tasty's. You go to Tasties afterwards. And your counselor would buy you a milkshake. And that's what happened. And you'd get this milkshake in front of all the other girls. And the other girls could get themselves whatever they wanted. But if you kissed a boy, then your milkshake was taken care of.
1: Okay.
0: Right?
2: <laughs> yeah, it just
1: just so toxic all the way around. Because I'm thinking about the, mm-hmm. of the girls who, you know, may not. Eat. Of course, they're probably looking for the girls who get this milkshake. And I can just, I hate that I have Khalees' milkshake in my head oh, right gosh. now. yeah. And I just, but I can just see the other girls who may think that they're not good enough. You oh, know, for sure. It's just toxic all the way around for everyone involved. And then the, the person who has to be a witness. Mm-hmm. So I have to basically say, okay, I'm probably not going to get a boy to kiss me because I don't look as good as so-and-so. So I'll be your witness. I'll be your friend so that you could go ahead and get the kiss. I'm not going to get into your milkshake, but I, I want you to win. And it just mm-hmm. how our societal standards are mm-hmm. are just so wrong, mm-hmm. so, and so harmful. But yet and still here we are
0: and then that witness part makes me think of that situation where, okay, you have to have a witness when you kiss this boy so that we can confirm it happened. But when you could have brought in ten witnesses to say you weren't sitting on your girlfriend's lap, that didn't matter. Nobody cares about that, right? No,
2: of course, yeah.
0: That could be twisted into whatever they wanted it to look like. Of
1: course.
2: Yeah, he literally created a narrative Mm -hmm. against you
1: that was completely false to to achieve a particular goal and manipulate. Absolutely.
2: Well, I mean, if you if you think of it, I mean, they're completely the same situation, right? Right. It's just I didn't kiss the boy and get the milkshake. My Mm -hmm. milkshake is my pay and my job. Mm -hmm. And this counselor who had a crush on me saw me kiss my girlfriend and went and cried and cried to the director of the camp who was buddy-buddy with because, you know, boys club. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm that girl who a boy wanted to kiss but I didn't want to kiss for that milkshake and they go, okay, well, then you don't get a milkshake today.
0: And you get punished. Yeah, in a pretty severe way, right?
2: But it's crazy how completely parallel those two situations yeah. are, and how that theme is just played out and played out and played out in mm-hmm. society at large, of course. But this is a little society. I mean, this camp itself—it's—it's it's summer to these girls. They go yeah. every single year. They come from extremely wealthy New England families. These this this camp costs roughly as much as college tuition. It's ridiculous wow. and. Yeah. Yeah. These girls are coming there every year as a place to like find themselves as young girls and as women and mm-hmm. this message is just being driven into them. They're being taught how to be women from a camp run by a man which already mm-hmm. is so indicative of our society and mm-hmm. what's problematic about everything that's happening and it's it's just written all over the walls.
1: One of the things that I do want to thank you for, um, as you were talking about how, you know, you didn't speak up or you didn't know. And I wanted to thank you for acknowledging that now, because a lot of times when we were younger in in different settings, especially like this, we're taught to just go ahead and just filter in with everything that's going on. Um, And now that we know better and we've evolved, I think it's important for us to realize, okay, I didn't get that right because this is what was going on with me at that time. And I didn't know better at that time, but now I know and I'm calling it out to be wrong and be as wrong and as detrimental and as harmful and hurtful as it is. And so I thank you. I thank you for your evolution.
2: Of course. I hope that everyone's always evolving. I'm sure there's going to be something five years down the line from right now that I look back on that's happening currently and I'm like, Oh, I could have handled that a million times better and said way more about it but you know you're you're learning and growing and that's all you can do.
0: So what happened when camp ended?
2: (laughs) So camp ended and the other thing about this camp is they have to ask counselors to return. So you have to get an invite to come back to be a counselor again the following year and of course my girlfriend at the time and I did not we, – we got an, an email telling us that we were not asked to come back. And when we I, – I, I, that was the first time I stuck, stuck up for myself in the situation and I asked why. I said, I did everything mm-hmm. <laughs> this camp ever – first off, I didn't even want to go back. There was no way in hell I was going back to that camp. It's just the fact that I was told that I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've done, I did everything that you ever asked me to. I taught six cl- yoga classes a day, which is an insane amount. Mm-hmm. I watched these girls. I did everything I could for them. What happened? And why am I not being asked back? And I got this very ho-hum, which my girlfriend sent an email as well asking the same thing. And we got a copied and pasted email to the two of us, the same one, saying that our time management skills weren't very good. So just made something up again. 100%. And so that was fine. I didn't want to go anyway, but I think what hurt me the most, and I do hope that some people from this camp do listen to this podcast because, well, first off, Beyond Queer Stories is just a really awesome podcast and Aww. I'm super grateful to be here on it, but also I guess like what I'd like to say is there are many people that saw me in that time and that I had started seeing as some of my closest friends because, you know, you spend every hour of the day with these people very close, very quickly, you feel like family. And I had people that held me as I sobbed and felt hatred for who I was for the first time and saw how unjust the whole thing was that played out and was th- were there for me and found out that I didn't get asked back for exactly that reason that they saw me hurt for. and. Would go back and put a smile on and keep doing the camp. And while it's not their responsibility to like stand in solidarity with me, I guess, or be an ally in that respect necessarily, I mean it is really, <laughs> but also I you know, I know that's a lot to ask of someone, I guess. I just would want to know from them how they feel. About going back and living that lie out again and again and again every summer that they continued to work there, knowing the values that a ca- that camp could and did stand for in so many ways. Um, and the way that it hurt, you know, people that you love and these girls who very seriously a lot of them are going to grow up and become queer too, and they're gonna have this internalized message from this camp. And how could you go? back and continue to support that. And I think the hard and confusing part was that there were very obviously queer gay women counselors that did get asked back, like my friend Gina. And I hate that that's kind of the, the line where people are like, oh, well, they're not completely homophobic, but it's just because Gina didn't fit the description of what an a male counselor wanted so they weren't missing out Mm -hmm. there was no quote-unquote waste for them of Mm -hmm. this individual that they could have consumed but didn't because of this ulterior quote-unquote lifestyle Mm -hmm. and because of that Gina was okay Gina could be one of the guys Gina could be back at camp and Mm -hmm. but if Gina wore high heels or if Gina had long flowing hair and some guy glanced at her and decided he wanted to sleep with her I don't think Gina would have been asked back either, and it's just, it's, I guess I just would love to know, you know, even, you know, with Gina, Gina did go back, and I'd just love to know how that, how that feels to them, looking back on some of those traditions and some of those things that happen now, Mm -hmm. how that sits with them. Can
1: we call Gina?
0: Right? I'm like, Gina, if you're out there, email us at beyondcoursestories at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your side. (laughs) How is that? Have you evolved?
1: (laughs) We just want to talk to you, love. (laughs) I think that
0: brings it back to the evolution, you know, that you were talking about, Jondalyn, is that evolution is so important, and I think we would all hope That since then, this person has also evolved, but we also know that queer people can be just as patriarchal and fall into that boys club category and hold misogyny just as much as heterosexual people can. We are not immune to that, and we see it, and I think it's important to acknowledge that that's also a possibility. As much as it sucks to feel that from your own community, that's very real, too.
2: Oh, I think it's extremely real. And I think it's necessary to know – like, I think the same way that I'm a very strong believer that no white person can confidently say that they are completely not racist because you have internalized racism from a society you grew up in. No matter what, it's what you're doing to fight against that mm-hmm. and to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing for women. There's I don't think there's a woman out there that says that they are 100% not misogynistic because they're faced with a society that is patriarchal and throwing that in their face every day and it's how hard you're fighting against that to educate yourself and break free from those constraints that the society's put on you.
0: Uh, We are almost out of time and I'm feeling feeling myself frustrated with that because there's so many more things I want to talk about and ask about. And to be completely honest, if we didn't have somebody else at 1 o'clock, I'd let us go over time (laughs) because…
1: I honestly feel like we should do a part two.
2: I mean, we can. I'm yeah. so down for a part two. <laughs> I would love to do a we part two. get
0: into your healing medicine. I <laughs> want to know about your teas and <laughs> tinctures. How do I get them? What do you How make? We haven't touched any of that. None of it. We haven't even tapped into it.
1: I'm just mad and wanted to go beat the man up at a camp, man. I know,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that's the feelings at the end of this, then I feel pretty okay about that. <laughs> But I'm so down for a part two, guys.
0: Well, let's get that on the books. We will definitely set that up because I want to hear all about your healing work. I mean, Jondalyn, you gave that amazing intro and we didn't <laughs> get to tap into any of that.
1: But we had to be the, the heroes that we are and tackle toxic masculinity. and That's right. And stuff.
0: That's right. <laughs> so right.
1: It's important. Yeah. We gotta do what we gotta do.
0: So what do you want the listeners to know about what you do? How could they find out more about what you do?
2: Well, um, I think realistically it would just be reaching out to me directly. I'm currently – I definitely make my own medicine, but I'm not currently in a position where I'm, you know, working with patients. Um, I haven't done enough schooling yet to confidently – confidently do that but I would love to give suggestions anywhere they're asked Um, but yeah reaching out to me directly um, I have taken a hiatus from Instagram I'm sure it won't last forever but um, you can hear my phone like (laughs) <laughs> um, but yeah, you can find me on Facebook. I know that's like the most ancient form of social media ever, but um you can find me on Facebook, just my name, personal last name, Kate DeSico. I'm the only one that exists. So reach out, add me, uh send me a message. I'd love to chat. And yeah, if you if you need any tinctures, I gotcha.
0: Nice. Yes, I might wanna hear a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> See what you have. Thank you so much for coming here, for being vulnerable, sharing your story, and bringing us to this amazing conversation. I feel like we never know where it's going to go. Like we get this bio, we're like, okay, we're going to talk about these things. But part of what I love is the organic nature—just how things flow. And I think it went where it needed to go today. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah, thank you. This has been really wonderful, and I also didn't know where it was going to go, but this is this is perfect and great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so
0: much. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories and Twitter at Beyond Queer Pod. Also, check out the creator of our podcast music, Bee Steadwell. She's an incredible queer artist who creates queer music and queer content. You can check her out at besteadwell.com. That's B-E-S-T-E-A-D-W-E-L-L dot com. Also, if you want to be a guest on the podcast, you can look for our link to submit on both Facebook and Instagram, or reach out to us at beyondqueerstories@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you're an iTunes listener, please rate us and leave us a comment. We'd love to get your feedback. This also helps others find our podcast. Talk to y'all next week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories.
1: Let me tell you about the first time we met. The year you died of breast cancer, I was 17. I had just moved from my Saskatchewan farm to a city in North Dakota. I started university and played competitive hockey. I had always played hockey on a men's team, but in university I played on a women's team. To pay for school, I began to identify as a woman in order to play hockey. It was my first experience of the commodification of my female body, but I didn't know yet what the exchange would cost me.